You're listening to the Industry Alchemist podcast. The definition of alchemy is a seemingly magical process of transformation or creation. This podcast exists to hear the stories of entrepreneurs, business owners, and leaders doing just that in their industry. We hear about the journey of the brave souls carving a new path, moving their industry and our lives forward in a seemingly magical way. This episode is brought to you by OfficeChief.com. Office Chief exists to make moving your office easy and painless. Moving an office can be a big hassle. On top of running your company, you're thrown into having to figure out what to do. Hire space planners, furniture companies, movers, IT consultants, the list goes on. It only takes two minutes to create a profile and Office Chief gives you a step-by-step action plan and connects you with the top vendors in your market. Moving your office? Log on to officechief.com and make it easy. I'm your host, Matt Brower, co-founder and managing broker of Column Commercial Partners, helping companies save money on their real estate. I'm also founder and CEO of OfficeChief.com, an online resource for businesses moving their office or updating their space. Hey guys, welcome to the Industry Alchemist podcast. I'm your host, Matt Brower. Uh, today's guest, uh, his name is Dr. Peter McGraw. He's a uh, behavioral economist and global expert in the scientific study of humor. He directs the Humor Research Lab, uh, hosts the podcast, I'm Not Joking, is the co-author of The Humor Code, and is the author of the recent book, Shtick to Business, What the Masters of Comedy Can Teach You About Breaking Rules, Being Fearless, and Building a Serious Career. He's a sought-after speaker and professor who teaches MBA courses for the University of Colorado Boulder, University of California, San Diego, and the London Business School. Welcome to the show, and thanks for being here, Peter McGraw. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Uh, I almost sound impressive with that introduction. Thank you for that. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I try. No, <laughs> no you are, uh, I am I am very, uh, so I got my degree in marketing, and I was looking through your LinkedIn, actually, uh, a few days ago, and discovered that you have, your education is in psychology and human behavior, and you bring uh, your experience and, and further education is actually marketing as well, kind of your, your more senior level, you know, PhD level studies and everything. And that's what I discovered when I got my degree in marketing is marketing is psychology. Yeah. It's, it's sociology. And I love the tie between that. Yeah, I agree. Like you could come at it. I think you come at it from one of two directions. Like you, you go to business school and you take all these sort of modeling classes and strategy classes. And, and then along the way, if you're lucky, you pick up a marketing perspective and then you realize, oh, it's really all about needs and wants and desires and satisfying those in novel ways. Or you come at it from my perspective, which is, well, there's this this world where there's some things that all make us human. And then there's these things that make us different, right? So the same, but different. And, and as a result, we have what I, you know, what we call heterogeneity, right? So people have different needs and, and what the marketplace does very nicely, especially nowadays is it's able to segment and I'm going to give this group that, and I'm going to give that group this, and now two different groups of people can be, equally happy with two very different solutions. Right, yeah, kind of tailoring to, this is like tailoring to the particular audience, like uh, uh, another way of saying that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a foundational idea in business is segmentation, targeting, and positioning. And it, it's something that in my MBA course, I, I basically tell my students, if you understand this basic principle, I have succeeded. Mm, you yeah. know, and, and one of the things that I do on day one of my MBA course is I teach a model by which to understand what it means to live a good life. And, um, and this is work built on Martin Seligman's work called the PERMA model. And what it does is it suggests that there are multiple paths to living a good life. And not one path is right, not one path is wrong. It's just a matter of, are you walking the right path for you? And once you can understand that people are on different paths, then they have different needs. It just opens up a whole, a whole bevy of opportunities for business and for marketers to, to find ways to thrive in what seems to be an oversaturate, uh, oversaturated competitive marketplace. Yeah, wow. So how do, you, um, how do you teach your students to get to that or to find out what, the, what living a good life means to their target or to their audience? Yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately that's like a whole other course <laughs> that they, they don't let me teach yet. <laughs> but I mean, one of the ways that I, I caution them. So there's the, there's both the like, okay, here's the great opportunity, but it's yeah. accompanied by, by caution, which is you can't use your good life as the example right? That is that you have to be very, very careful that your instincts, your desires, your wants are, are not going, you know, are not going to be a good solution for this particular group of people. So I'll give you an example that's related to comedy. So comics are, in my, in my opinion, master marketers. So that is that they're, they're really they're innovators, they're product innovators. So why is that the case? Well, the first reason is that novelty is so valued in comedy. Not only as a comic can you not tell jokes that are similar to other people's jokes, but you can't even tell jokes that are similar to the jokes you told in your last comedy special. And so you have to be hyper aggressive in coming up with new, new products all the time. Right, so the, the Rolling Stones can play Sympathy for the Devil every time that they perform and their audience is happy. And Coca-Cola can sell you the same beverage every single time. You have, actually, you want the same beverage every time. If it's different, you'd right. be upset. Right? Yeah. And comics can't do that, so they have developed these practices and perspectives, including something that is now state-of-the-art in the world of, of business, which is to fail fast. This idea of being agile, the lean, the kind of lean startup mentality, the minimum viable product. Well, my, my joke is that vaudeville was the first lean startup because what, what comics do is they have a hunch that this thing is going to be funny, this kernel of an idea. They try it out with a small audience. They gauge the reaction and then they do what businesses do. They improve it, yeah. you know, right? They dump it or they go back to the drawing board with it, 
You know what I mean? They have this iterative <laughs> process. And what they yeah. have to do is give up their initial thoughts, which is, oh, this is what's going to be good. And they start listening to their, their audience. Oh my God, brilliant analogy, wow. <laughs> That's so true. And the fact that they're constantly always, they're creating those new products, those new jokes constantly. I, yeah, the comedians do uh, become masterful at it, which is, which is basically what, you, what you're teaching. Indeed, yes. And so wow. I, I sprinkle in some, I, I sprinkle in some sort of comedy lessons so, for example, I have this great video of Jerry Seinfeld. So, Jerry Seinfeld obviously is one of the masters of comedy. There's no doubt about it. A man's worth nearly a billion dollars. So, you know, yeah, he's yeah. good at what he does. But he's actually really an incredibly thoughtful fellow, not just about his craft, but sort of about everything in the world. And that curiosity obviously serves him for his style of comedy, observational comedy. But he, in an interview, uh, with uh, Jesse David Fox, who, who I had on, on my, um, my comedy podcast, I'm Not Joking, he talked about how when Seinfeld was in syndication, the, um, the provider, the channel that was, was buying it was seeing the rating slip. The ratings were going down and down. Now, one of the interesting things about Seinfeld, the, the show, is that it actually did very, very well in syndication. Um, and it has for many years, and it holds up pretty, pretty well, I think, in part because of the universality of the problems that they go through. But what happened was like Channel 5 was like, we're going to give it up. And so then, you know, Channel 7 was like, well, we'll buy it. Yeah. And you would, you know, and, and the idea. And so what you would expect is that Channel 7 would just pick up where Channel 5 left off. And Seinfeld said the ratings went up with Channel 7. And he couldn't figure this out. You know, it's like, why would this be the case? And then he had the realization is it, there's not a bunch of people who like Seinfeld per se. There's just a bunch of Channel 5 people. And there's a yeah. bunch of Channel 7 people. And now you give them Seinfeld on 7 and they watch it. You know, right. it's like, and you know, it takes like a little bit of a comedic perspective to start to figure that that puzzle out yeah that's uh, so it goes that deep with his career i mean he's nobody can argue he's masterful at, at what he does and what he very methodical about it indeed um wow that's uh, that's interesting how did you how did you uh start down the journey of comedy being kind of what you study and what you teach I, was this a personal passion of yours prior to all this or you know not no not in the way that people often tell these stories of um i was just so passionate about this i just had to do it i mean of course i'm a fan of comedy you know i grew up you know i grew up at a time where where com comedy was booming you know in the 80s and 90s you were getting stand-up specials and a rise of comedy clubs and so on and so just like anyone else though i i enjoyed it not in any special way Right. And I'd say like, of course, I like telling jokes and being funny. And, you know, that's a little bit of my personality. But no one ever said to me, Pete, you should really be a stand up. You know, like, it was like, Pete, by professor standards, you're pretty funny. And by comedian standards, you're pretty boring. 
you know, that's sort of my, that's sort of my, my level. But what happened was I just stumbled onto this question of what made things funny about 10 years into my career. So it wasn't something I had ever read about, thought about, contemplated in any way. And when I stumbled onto the question of what makes things funny, like essentially what happened was I was giving an academic talk about what makes things wrong about moral violations, moral psychology. And someone pointed out how an, an example of an immoral behavior led the audience to laugh. And, and she was puzzled. She puzzled over that. She's like, you know, you're talking about how moral violations cause anger and disgust, and yet we're laughing, we're expressing positive emotion. And I would say that it was my curiosity more than my passion that led me to study this. And it just started very small, you know, in that sort of minimum viable product kind of way. I was like, let me write a paper about this. You know, let me start with one single paper. Now, dozens of papers later, two books later, TEDx talks later, you know, a, a completely revamp of my entire professional life and, and frankly, personal life. Um, but it all started with just this one question, a single paper, and, um, and the paper was so well received. And I realized, oh, I have something here that I decided to spend more and more time on it. Now I spend, you know, the lion's share of my academic time on this topic. Right. So you, you talked about, you briefly mentioned uh, several books later. Was your first book, um, The Humor Code? Looks like back in 2011. Yeah, 2004. It feels, no, when was it? 2014. Yes. Okay. Boy, it's, you know, it seems like a long time ago. But, uh, so <laughs> time, yeah, that book, flies, it so, does. Yeah. That book was a lot of fun to do. So that, you know, what a lot of, what a lot of people who write business books and write pop science books do, obviously when they write a memoir, is they're looking back on their career, their life, and summarizing big ideas. You know, it takes 10, 20 years to really develop an idea. The Humor Code wasn't written like that. The Humor Code, well, my co-author, Joel Warner, a journalist, and I started it maybe two years into me studying humor. Oh. And, and so the book is, is placed in a different way. So it has a memoir element to it. It has a pop science element to it, but it's also a travel log. So what we do in that book, the subtitle is called a, a global search for what makes things funny, is we travel the world to these faraway places to try to solve puzzles related to comedy. For example, um, why does comedy come from dark, dark places? So we go to Palestine and look at the first sketch group that had a show on Palestinian national television. Um, and so we also went to this idea of is laughter the best medicine. We went to the Amazon with Patch Adams and a hundred hospital clowns to look at oh my God. does, you know, does humor really help you cope and so on. And so the, the book's kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a buddy road trip comedy of sorts, um, but with more scientific insights than laugh out loud moments. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's an interesting um, thing to delve further into because 
you know, we're all, we're all taught or we all hear that like the, the chemical changes in your brain that occur in your brain, the chemicals that get released when you laugh <clears throat> actually make uh, your body, you know, your mind and your body feel better. Even if that laugh is fake, I've heard, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've taken part in this thing called laughing yoga. Oh yes, where, I've done it. Yeah. Yeah, have you? Yeah. Yes. I can't remember her name right now, but she lives actually in Boulder, Colorado, which is where you spend a lot of your time. Uh, she she took a, a business group of mine through laughing yoga, and it was basically forced laughter for specific reasons or purposes. And and uh, I mean, it was just a great great experience. And that was her point: is when you laugh, uh, the the chemicals that get released in your brain, going del delving into the psychology of it all. Um, it's fascinating. So, Indeed. That, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. So the. Uh... The fascinating thing about laughter yoga is you, this is what we call um, non-Duchene laughter um, versus Duchene laughter, which basically is fake laughter and real laughter. It's like fake, you know, you have fake smiles, you yeah. know, um, so the, the smile that you do when you're posing for a picture or the smile that you have in genuine joyous moments. And, uh, that, and, and real laughter, which is Fascinating because the laughter yoga starts with the fake laughter, but but oftentimes transforms into true joyous laughter. Yeah. So you oh, end up walking point. out of those sessions feeling really wonderful, energized, yeah. and and positive. Yeah, that's a great point. That is exactly what happened with our group. So yeah, so there's all these like they throw these laughter bombs into the circle. It's a, it's very like it has a very improv-y kind of improvisational feel to it. It's a very game yeah. playing. Um, it's really is designed to, to eventually create true laughter, especially if you get a group of people who are comfortable with each other together. Yeah. That's the ideal scenario, I think. Okay. So tying humor to business, which now is, you know, related to your most recent book, uh, The Shtick of Business. Stick, I'm sorry, stick to business. Yes. Um, talk more about, let's dive into the correlation between those two and how your, how this book, uh, I guess, let's start by give, give us the gist of what this book's about. Sure. Well, so let me tell you what the book's not about. So the book is not about being funnier at work. And the reason for that is, by the way, that was sort of my initial idea when I wanted to bring my day job teaching MBAs and my night job decoding comedy together. My first instinct was teach people about the, the benefits of being funny, you know, go forth and be funny and profit, so to speak. And, and it's not that that's not true. It's just that it's difficult to do well. And so mm -hmm. if, I, if I tell a ballroom, at a keynote of a thousand people to go forth and be funny. We really yeah. have to worry about that guy. You know, the guy who thinks he's funny. And so while some people would, would benefit, you know, their, their sales would be better, their customer service would be better, their, their leadership and management would be better. There's a bunch of those people who are underskilled who it would make everything worse and it would make <laughs> things really bad, you know, yeah, right. awkward at, at best. And so the, and actually, I talk about this idea in the book, what I call third thoughts. So, so the book 
wasn't my first thought. It wasn't my second thought, right? It was the, the results of, of creativity, creative processes often bear fruit when you just keep banging on a problem for a long time. You know, the number of solutions that you come up with predicts the creativity of the solution that you choose. Mm -hmm. And so I just waited and waited. It didn't feel right. And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work on this idea. I'm going to find a different place. And if I don't, if I can't find a way to bring these two worlds together, I'm not going to bring them together. I'm not going to force it. But so the insight was don't, don't be funny, rather think funny. So learn to think like the world's funniest people, because these are the most creative, innovative people around. They take a job that's so difficult, making people laugh on command, and they, they make it look easy. And whatever they do to make it look easy, we probably could stand to learn from. So I've already alluded to one of those things earlier, which is this sort of fail fast, minimum viable, excuse me, yeah, minimum viable product perspective. And so what I do in the book is I present lessons for business based upon the practices and perspectives of the masters of comedy. And, uh, and, and some of them are sort of marketing, uh, branding, management related, and then some of them are more professional development, career development related. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I cannot wait to get a copy of this book. Um, and it, you, you kind of give, well, at least uh, in the description, you kind of give examples of, you know, uh, you mentioned what Tina Fey and Amy Poehler can teach you about creating disruptive innovation. Uh, Dave Chappelle, Joan Rivers are, are the blueprints of brand building. This is happening more and more in our world where, mm. you know, uh, musicians, uh, comedians, actors, like they are becoming, uh, once they build their own brand, they become, they, they then create a clothing line and they create a, all these other brands. And, you know, the, game, the name of the game now is like, how can I get to billionaire status as fast as possible? There's a lot to learn from, from these individuals. So it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting topic uh, to really dive into. Yeah, I have, a, I have a chapter in the book called Take a Bigger Stage. And in it, I, I present three ideas about um, uh, a bigger place. Might, you might need to move in order mm -hmm. to take your career to the next level. You might need a bigger platform. So you might need, you might need more reach. So this is about distribution. And then you might need a bigger perspective. That is, you need to start thinking bigger. And one of the cool things about, about comedians are um, these are people who are pursuing their dreams. You know, they're, they are seeking uh, success in the way that the average person never really takes a big risk. And I think right. that they can be inspirational in that way. Putting themselves literally on the line. Indeed. <laughs> the yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I didn't put this in the book because I couldn't, I couldn't decide if I, if I agreed with the lesson. But I, so I have a, another podcast called I'm Not Joking that looks at the lives of funny people. And I ask people, if you weren't doing what you are doing, what would, what else would you do, right? If you weren't a comedian, what would you be doing? And you'd be surprised how many comedians say I'd be in debt or I'd be dead or in jail. That is, <laughs> I mean, some of it's, a, it's an easy laugh line, but I think some of them really believe it. That is, they 
they don't have a plan B. Mm-hmm. It's either you succeed or you bleed out. And um, that's, uh, that's a wild idea, you know, and it, it actually contrasts with another piece of advice that I often give. And that's why I didn't put it in the book, which is, um, no, 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 you don't, you know, you take care of business, you take care of your bills, you get a job that's steady, and then you create a side hustle. And then you see, can your side hustle become your full-time hustle? Right. So never risk bleeding out, so to speak. Right. Um, and so I, I just think it's some of it's about how you're wired and what you need to motivate yourself. Like, I'm, I've never been one who needed extra motivation to take on a side hustle or a second side hustle or a third side hustle. But some people need it to be, you know, you're burning the boats behind you is the only way that they're going to, to do it. So, so I just never felt comfortable with that, but I was surprised by the number of comics who just, they have no plan B. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. They're making it or, or nothing. Or nothing. Wow. Yeah. Which is, which is probably uh, a lot of the reason for their success. Well, yeah, you ha- it forces you to do the work. It forces you to be creative. It forces you to be different because being the same in comedy is a lot like being the same in business. That is, now you have to compete on price. <laughs> and that's no, that's no way to live, right? You know, right. just by lowering yeah. prices. And in comedy, too often, they already expect you to work for free. So it's only yeah. the elites who really make their way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of turning uh, your business into a commoditized uh, thing. That, that's the opposite of what we're all striving for. Indeed, yes. You know? That's great. So what's, uh, how can the listeners find your book? What's, where, what platforms are you available on? Uh, it's Amazon, as, as almost everything else in the world is. So yeah. there's an um, e-book, soft cover, and audible. Um, warning to your listeners, if you don't like listening to me, do not get the audible because I, <laughs> I unfortunately read it. But one of the fun things about that, that is I have a comedian friend named Shane Moss who chimes in every so often in what I call shtick from Shane, where he talks about his own personal experiences related to the lessons that I'm talking about. And, and fortunately, he does it in his voice. And so it has that nice little sort of palate cleansing part. That's of the great. Book. And then I'm, a, I'm at petermcgraw.org. I'm on Twitter at Peter McGraw, Instagram at Peter McGraw, LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's great. Congrats on the, on the new book and I'm sure the success of the, the prior book. Um, I want to, I want to ask, uh, kind of wrap this with just some rapid fire questions so we can get to know you, uh, on a deeper level personally. And, um, you know, you can take as much time as you want or, or as, as quickly. Do you have any, um, books that have, I mean, I'm sure you probably utilize a lot of, you know, business and marketing books to teach your courses. Have there been any books that you've read uh, over the years that have been very impactful to you personally with what you do, uh, what you teach? Boy, yeah, I could take up an hour talking about this. So I'm a, actually, I just got back from a reading retreat. So I went away for five days with a huge pile of books and, and uh, consumed them and have come back with a bunch of ideas. Um, I'll just give you a few off the top of my head. There's, I, there's so many. 
Um, there's a book by David Schwartz called The Magic of Thinking Big. It's an old book. It's very feels very Dale Carnegie-esque kind of book. It's a little dated, but in the in the book, he makes the case that if you want to accomplish great things in life, you have to start thinking bigger. And you start have to behaving like someone who thinks big. And as for someone who grew up kind of poor, um, I, I found that to be a useful starting point to just kind of energize me and try to get me to think differently than I do. There's a, a variety of books by Cal Newport. Um, one book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. The other one um, that I really like called Deep Work that is about how do you pursue success that's there. Um, there's another, another book, I can't remember the, Scott Belsky, I think is his name, a book called Making Ideas Happen. Um, both, both the Cal Newport books and the Belsky books influenced my thinking in Shtick to Business. So I talk about, you can come up with an idea alone, but you need others to execute an idea. And, and so comedians, even, a, even the stand-up comic needs others. You know, they need bookers. They need an audience to help them develop their material. So this idea of right. how do you collaborate well with others in order to make the thing that you need, need want to, to make. Um, another book that I'm reading right now uh, is called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. And I, I like that book because anybody who's going to go into business really in many ways needs to be a rational optimist. Like if you're a pessimist, why would you ever try to start a business with the failure rates? If you think that the world is just going to, going to hell in a handbasket, why are you going to try to make it better? Yeah. And so Matt really puts forth a very um, persuasive case about how innovation has and will continue to make the world a better place to live. Now, of course, there's going to be hiccups. Obviously, COVID is one of the ones that is... Um, you know, we're going to have to deal with for another six plus months or so. And it's, it's devastating clearly, but that doesn't make me any less bullish about life in the world we're, we're living in. And Ridley, I think does a very nice job better than the, the Steve Pinker book that does a similar thing. Um, not only puts forth the reasons shows how the world's improved, but why it's improving. And, and frankly, the, the takeaway is about this idea of cooperation the humans have the ability to cooperate. The ability to, to, to cooperate with a stranger is, um, is, really, um, is really quite important. So I'll leave yeah. you, uh, that's enough for people's reading list, but those are some that, that um, have had a big effect on me. That's, that's great, appreciate the list. And speaking of to innovation, I mean, uh, this pandemic is going, I think gonna cause a massive amount of innovation over the next couple of years. I more than we've probably ever seen in our lifetimes. So I'm excited to see what comes of it. Yeah, because innovation comes, or again, creativity is about solving problems well and, nov and in a novel way. So I like to say yeah. creativity is, is um, the, an original appropriate solution to a problem. Well, we have a whole bunch of new problems. Yeah. And, um, and so that's going to spur, spur this. So I, 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 I agree. Yeah. How about, um, how about any routines, any morning routines or anything you do to, um, you know, keep yourself on track, keep yourself moving forward, drive your success? Yeah, so I do have a morning routine. I call it my ritual. I have a morning ritual. I think ritual sounds, is, 
is better than routine. Yeah. Um, well, I, I basically, I get up, um, I brush my teeth, I wash my face, I drink a bunch of water and I get dressed and as quickly as I can, I'm usually trying to find my way to a cafe or a coffee shop and I order a delicious cappuccino and mm -hmm. I do creative work. For many, many years that was writing. Um, it still is often writing, but now it's expanded a little bit more broadly um, with me on sabbatical. So perhaps I, I journal or I read, but I engage in one to four hours of creative work. And I, I, I like going to a coffee shop. I, you know, right now it's difficult to do, clearly. But I like the energy of the place. I like that it's not at home. I like that it's not in the office. I like that it's sort of like there's some energy around me. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's like cappuccino and right is sort of the, the ritual. That's and great. It's, it gets your brain, uh, exercises your brain and kind of gets your, gets your get, gets the thoughts moving. Absolutely. And this is sacred time. So I do not schedule dental appointments. I do not run errands. I do not tape podcasts, you know. So, so for example, today, the earliest call I did was at 10 a.m. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough when people in the UK want to track me down, but I'm like, sorry. So it's sacred. Right. It's sacred time. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're sitting in uh, Los, uh, San Diego right now, right? Or Los Angeles. I mean, yeah, I'm in Hollywood. Well, I'm in my closet right now, but yes, I'm in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> well, the acoustics sound amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Perfect for podcasting. <laughs> oh, that's great. So um, last question, uh, what, what would you consider your superpower to be? What is something you are great at that people may or may not know about you? My superpower, hmm. Besides making to-do lists, I'm very <laughs> good at making a to-do list. I love a good to-do list and I love crossing off a to-do list. You know, I will tell you this is, I think one of the things that I'm very good at is maintaining um, friendships. So I'm a, I'm a lifelong bachelor. Um, I actually have a podcast called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. This is like a side, side, side hustle, you know, right. kind of thing. And um, as someone who's, now committed to not getting married, but, but, you know, as a younger man was more ambivalent about it. Um, I, and as I said, grew up poor. I always found that my friendships served more than just fun. They were more than just fun. They were places for information. They were places for support. They were places for inspiration. And as a result, I have always very carefully cultivated reliable, high integrity, energizing individuals. And I've always worked very hard to keep those people close, even when I might have been in a relationship. Hmm. And so I, I do that very nicely, I think, with my, with my friends. And then I, I do it pretty well with what I call my business friends. So these are people who I, I'm fond of in a, in, a, in a more sort of career capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think people would say Pete's a good friend. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is it an effortless thing uh, for you or are you intentionally making sure you uh, contact, reach out, be there? Be yeah. There? Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, I would say this, it's not intentional. Like many of the things in my life are intentional where I like, I try to eat two salads a day and I do yeah. my ritual in the morning and I make my to-do list. But what I am good about doing is if I have a thought, like my instincts are good. Like, oh, Pete, you haven't talked to Dan in a while. You know, and so then I'll put it, I'll put it on my day to give Dan a call. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, the one place that I do have a kind of ritual around it is when I'm doing a drive. So hands-free in the car, instead of listening to music or podcasts, I get on the phone. Mm. That's and a so, great time. So I just, I have kind of a rotation of people who pick up the phone and then I have a group of people who I might just give it a shot, you know? Yeah. And if you, if you, if you're my friend and you pick up the phone, you get more phone calls. And if you're my <laughs> friend and you don't pick up the phone, you get a scheduled call. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great. I, I uh, could definitely use uh, more of that. I'm, you know, I have, uh, very fortunate to have a lot of friends. I'm not the greatest at uh, keeping in communication with them, but uh, yeah, I, that's that's the time I use in the car as well as uh, use that time to be in communication. So. Yeah, I joke. I give good phone. So yeah, I've had girlfriends who don't talk on the phone. You know, no one really talks on the phone that much anymore. Everybody wants to text. Right. And I've had them and I've kind of brought them around, you know, where they say to me, the only two people I talk to on the phone is you and my mother. My mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I've uh, been receiving a lot and actually starting to do a lot more is uh, and actually Stephanie McHugh, who introduced us, our mutual yes. friend. She's uh, somebody that's great at this. She will record a voice message. Ah. Yes. And send that recording as a text. And so I can, you know, receive it, click go and hear her voice. And like, it's, it's, a, it's not talking, but it's better than a text. It's a little more personal than a text. And uh, I find that to be, you know, really cool. Yeah, Matt, I'm glad you brought that up. I just discovered this recently through a friend. And I think I'm going to start doing it much more, especially because my thumbs are terrible. They're too fat. And so yeah. I just missed, I, you know, I mistype everything and Siri hates me. So autocorrects things wrong. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I think that this is, that's, it's a nice in between. Yeah. It's a yeah. Very nice in between. Great. Well, Peter, I have very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for, uh, you know, sharing your wisdom and telling us about the book and uh, making the correlations between, I uh, just such a great analogy of, of, uh, what makes a business successful. Most of the listeners here are entrepreneurs and business leaders and uh, those that are looking to, you know, level up whatever it is they're doing. So this is great info for that. So, um, and I'm going to go get a copy of the book and, and uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners here are too. So. Well, it's Thanks my pleasure. Great. Enjoy the rest of your day. Peter. Cheers. Bye-bye.